You're listening to Music Tectonics. Welcome back to Music Tectonics, where we go beneath the surface of music and tech. Dimitri here, and we're just days away from the Music Tectonics Conference, October 24th to 26th in Santa Monica. And we have a very compelling three-part episode to get your head ready for the most cutting-edge topics that will be on the minds and the agenda this year. Three topics that are critical to what's happening in music innovation right now. Now, that's the thing about this podcast and our conference. We're agile enough to give you info that keeps you on your toes of changes coming through right now. Today, our three guests are going to hit on streaming fraud, the billion-dollar problem, laid out by BeatDap's co-founder, Morgan Heideck. Then we have a segment on the seismic evolutions in music data and data transparency that's transforming how rights holders are getting paid more of what they have coming to them. That's with Serona Elton from the Mechanical Licensing Collective. And listen through to the end of this episode when we have Daniel Rowland talk about his experiments with all the major AI generative music releases of recent days, a shortcut to make sure you understand the differences and nuances between them all. That's a packed episode meant to give you FOMO. Sorry, not sorry. Let's go straight to my interview with Morgan of BeatDap about streaming fraud. At Music Tectonics, we focus on innovation of all stripes in the music industry, from creator tools to artificial intelligence, from the metaverse to music and gaming and fitness, but we're not a flavor of the month community. There's real and tough problems to be solved in the business of music, and innovative founders and execs that join us on the podcast and at the conference use innovation to help solve these problems. My next guest is a shining star in this realm. Morgan Hayduke is co-CEO and co-founder of BeatDap, a fraud detection company for the music industry. Morgan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Dimitri. It's a pleasure to be here. And I'm excited to see you in a week at Music Tectonics. You're speaking on a panel, and we'll get into a little bit of that topic now. But let's just dive in. Why has streaming fraud become such a big topic lately? It's a great question. It's one of my favorites because it's a tale that sort of extends beyond the music industry. You can think about big pots of money, of revenue that are accessible on the internet as you know, wonderful things, amazing innovation that facilitates e-commerce and trade and financial institutions to do all the things that they do. Uh, but it also becomes a vector for attack for motivated, often sophisticated and coordinated bad actors who are looking to you know, reap some of that reward through oftentimes you know, very sophisticated tactics. So music, you know, and the emergence of streaming since 2006, but really over the last 10 years, the way that the revenue pool has accelerated, the way that the you know, consumption of streamed audio has just exploded, has made music, I think, a new attacking ground for fraudsters. Um, and it's really, a, I think, a fairly simple reason to understand why they've targeted us. You have consumer-facing platforms that always have a trade-off between security and growth um, with a direct revenue sort of payment outcome tied to consuming audio, tied to listening to music. And so when they look at, you know, users and the platform dynamics themselves and the ability to recoup, you know, their investment fairly quickly or clean money that they're looking to move from, you know, dirty money to clean, uh, music offers a, an opportunity to do just that. It's not unique to us. And I think, you know, while we feel it specifically in the industry and are talking more about it today, um, this has sort of been, we're executing a playbook that is tried, tested and true across other verticals to increase security, you know, increase the integrity of the product for everyone who makes money in the industry, and ultimately, hopefully, push fraudsters somewhere else. 
Interesting. So how big of a problem was this? And then, and then maybe you could tell us a little bit about like, what does it actually look like? What does streaming fraud, fraud look like? Yeah, the problem, you know, we estimate it between five and 10% of all streams. If you think of each individual percentage point of global market share and streaming is worth about $175 million, it's not hard to get to very big numbers very quickly. Um, and the reality is the way we view it is at 1%, it's a problem at 10%. It's, you know, stop everything. It's the biggest problem we have. And we're confident that it lands somewhere in that range. We're not alone in this. You know, other DSPs have said publicly five, seven, 10% themselves is what they see um, on their platforms. Obviously, if that's a reported number, it may actually be higher because oftentimes that's what they're catching, not what they're entirely, um, not what they're entirely having happen on the platform. Um, industry analysts, I mean, I think JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs have also uh, put five to 10% in reports that they've written. So we feel very confident, not just in our own data um, and what we've analyzed, but also what the other industry has sort of triangulated. Other players in the industry have triangulated to um, as the range. And it's a, it's a startling range. And so what do we mean by, like, what does it look like? What does streaming fraud, fraud look like? It looks like, you know, bots or stolen accounts uh, working in coordination to drive, for the most part, revenue to non-music actors in the industry. So what I mean by that specifically is that what we see about 80%, maybe a little bit more of the activity we see is not targeting what you and I think of as chart music, as popular music, as you know the stuff that everyone is listening to on Spotify or Apple or Amazon or any of the other platforms. It's noise, it's you know poor, low fidelity, ripped audio from other places. It's the things that we really aren't finding in our day-to-day -day consumption, but has been put onto these platforms specifically to target with streams to recoup that revenue. And so I put about 80% of what we see in that bucket. And it's, I say bots or stolen accounts and oftentimes stolen accounts that are run as a bot farm. But there is a difference. A bot to us is an account that's been specifically set up only for the purpose of streaming music and targeting music for fraud. Stolen accounts are probably the more pernicious and honestly effective, not to give fraudsters a roadmap tactic, because you're able to hide your intentions among the sort of natural organic listening behavior of the owner of that account. I usually pause here because I think stolen accounts is one of these things that like, we've all heard the stories, we've all heard about data breaches, experience had a data breach, Facebook's had a data breach, everyone's had a data breach over the years. What I don't think the average consumer appreciates is that something like 90 plus percent of login attempts on the login wall of most consumer facing websites are what's called credential stuffing attacks. And that is where someone has obtained login credentials from another site's breach and is testing it on other platforms. Hmm. And so every time there's a breach, it's not just the platform that was impacted. Right. It's the ability to go and test those credentials everywhere else. So the ability to obtain stolen accounts is easier than ever. It's basically like my co-founder, Andrew, often says it's like spinning up EC2 instances on Amazon. You just have to tell someone how much you need and for how long, and they can get you the volume. Wow. So you could be logging into Spotify with Facebook, logging into something else with Facebook, and then some 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 third party, not even Spotify or Facebook, could uh, could could somehow have a breach and then all of a sudden people get access to your Spotify account, for example. Exactly, right. And, and you know, Look, I'm guilty of this. Uh, I probably shouldn't say it, but password hygiene is probably not on my list of um, accolades. And so and I think I probably speak for a lot of folks when you say that. And then when you're thinking about the sites that you care most about protecting those login credentials for, I would guess your streaming service password and username 
are not at the top of that list. Right. And so even if you're great about it for your bank, you're probably not resetting that password or using something truly unique and hard to crack for other platforms. And you know, when data breaches happen, that's the hope of these fraudsters. So how, how does this impact artists and labels, this, this whole situation with streaming fraud? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's, you know, it's painful for everyone, but particularly for artists, because one, they're probably the furthest removed from being able to have you know, any impact on what's happening at a sort of platform security level. Um, and then second, the revenue flows through to them proportionally. And so if you're moving market share by you know, any number of points at the aggregate, you're having that flow through directly and consequentially and proportionally to all of the artists, big and small, who are making a living in the music business. And I think that's, you know, to me, that's the sort of animating motivation for the company. It's like, there are a lot of people who are not empowered to do anything about this, but are at, on the receiving end of bad outcomes. And we want to make sure that if you're working incredibly hard and doing all the things you have to do to break through and to have a career in music, you aren't being punished by, you know, actions not of your own, but of just you know, the susceptibility of the industry to being defrauded. Gotcha. All right. So that's a good context of sort of how big it is, what is it, how it's impacting the industry. What exactly is BeatDap and how are you fighting streaming fraud? We are a venture-backed startup. We identified this issue some number of years ago through conversations with platforms, with labels, with artists, with lawyers, anyone and everyone who would sort of speak about it um, and recognize that there was clearly a gap in the market for a third party who could come in and solve this problem, not just on a one-by-one -one basis, but to the benefit of everyone by working together. Uh, and I don't mean that in some sort of fluffy, we can all work together, kumbaya kind of way. I mean, literally, this is a big data problem. And the way that you get ahead of very sophisticated and you know clever fraudsters is by having the biggest and best data set to analyze across platforms and understand what tactics are being used and how to spot those patterns on a platform-by-platform -platform basis, but informed by what's happening across all of them. And I'll just give one sort of specific example here. You know, when you work with a smaller platform, it costs far less to analyze all of their data and look for really sort of unique edge cases. And so one of the advantages of being a company that looks across platforms of all shapes and sizes is we can test and develop models on small data sets looking for edge cases that you probably would never look for in the massive sort of Herculean data sets of some of the bigger players, but then apply that learning to them anyway. And mm. so there's there's a really natural lane in any industry impacted by fraud for trusted neutral third parties to come in and look across, you know, across a competitive data set, right? Like DSPs are not going to share directly with one another their most granular platform data. So you need someone to sit in the middle, be a trusted intermediary and be able to provide that benefit back to everyone. So who are your clients? That is a great question that we typically do not answer uh, on mean, podcasts. I'm sorry. Morgan, I don't mean who are your specific <laughs> clients. I mean, who are your types of clients? Yeah, we work with sort of four client types. We work with DSPs directly. We work with music labels. We work with distributors. And we work with collection societies. Gotcha. Okay. All right. That makes sense. So a couple different approaches probably with, with, with those as well. Yeah. So have you heard of specific artists or labels that have been affected by streaming fraud? I mean... All of them have been affected by streaming fraud. I think publicly, a number of them have started speaking out um, about this topic, whether in the context of new economic models or in the context of things that we need to get our arms around is sort of better as an industry. Um, but yeah, I, I probably don't go, maybe not a day, but certainly not a week without hearing an anecdote um, from an artist or from a label. Um, and some of the worst stories that I hear, the ones that sort of make me the most sad, particularly on the label side, is when 
someone comes in and says, you know, I worked with a third party marketing firm that I, you know, was casting about on Google, looking for someone to help me with playlist strategy or someone to help me with artist marketing. And they promised me the world in terms of being able to drive streaming volume around the first week of a release or some new single. And so we paid them, you know, sometimes I think recently I heard an artist, a small label say they paid $25,000 to a firm um, who delivered them artificial streams that were then flagged by the DSP as fraud uh, and resulted in their artist being demonetized on the platform. Um, that's a horrible outcome. And it's all too common because at the beginning, we talked about the sort of 80% being financial right. fraud. The more painful for the industry part that's directly painful for artists and labels is the 20% that is, I thought I was buying third-party playlist help and I accidentally bought ClickFarm. And the gray in between those two things, you know, is all too common. Um, because when you search for help me get more streams on DSPX, you will be inundated with companies that are offering you services that are definitely fronts for click frauds and, and farms. I mean, is there ever a legitimate third party that can get you more streams or or uh, or follows or, or things like that? Or is it always this sort of like bot farm stuff? I mean, I would offer a couple of thoughts. The first is, you know, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. So if you're promised explicitly X number of streams for X dollars, you are more than likely buying click farms and stolen accounts. If you are talking to, and there are so many great vendors and so many great you know, technology companies, marketing firms, agencies in the music business and outside the music business who want to break in, who do incredible marketing strategy will help you, you know, try to achieve virality on UGC platforms that spin into streams. There's lots of things that you can do that are legitimate. I don't want to like foreclose on the entire vertical of marketing um, out of fear that you're accidentally buying, you know, fraudulent streams. But if the, tr if, the, if the cost benefit is presented to you explicitly in terms of you can buy this many streams from us, you should not use that vendor. Right. I know there's a lot of companies out there that are kind of like what we used to do at Rock, Paper, Scissors. We did PR for artists and labels and tours. Yeah. Now there's kind of the PR version of that as playlists, like curators, whether they're um, institutional curators who are hired by the DSPs or uh, UGC curators out there that are just making popular uh, lo-fi chill playlists or, or whatever else it is. Um, totally. So I'm, sh I'm sure that stuff, you know, that varies as well about how successful they are, but it would make sense to me that you could, um, you know, there's other marketing strategies <laughs> besides bot farms. <laughs> yeah. Like there are lots of good ones. I do all of the other ones. Sometimes people say like, what should we do? And I said, anything else? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, do artists and labels have anything they can do to help stop streaming fraud? I mean, for us, you know, there are, there are certain, um, yeah, there are, there are certain things that they can do, certainly from an artist educational standpoint, because this isn't typically a decision that's made at the sort of parent sort of macro level. It's made in, within an artist's camp or through management. And so it's just about sort of educating them that these things are out there and they shouldn't step on the rakes that are laying around. Um, that might get them in trouble. Um, and then I think also it's it's worth always just pushing for more accurate detection across the platforms. I mean, if I could ask anything of the artist community and the label community generally, it would be to say, hey, like, enough is enough. There's a proven roadmap here. It's worked in e-commerce. It's worked in financial industries. I mean, we have um, a great Canadian company called Verifin that we often analogize to because they built this exact business uh, in the financial services industry. They started with credit unions and small banks in Canada, and they worked their way up to using, you know, being a, um, a vendor to JP Morgan and Wells Fargo, where they're looking at their data for fraud in bank transaction data. Um, and for the exact same reason, you know, JP Morgan and Wells aren't sharing with one another, but they will work with a trusted third party. 
So, you know, advocating for, you know, better technology, the application of that technology, um, you know, that to me is the, is probably the biggest ask I would have of the artist and label community because the benefits really flow through, you know, ultimately in the end to them. Because our largest share of the money is going to real artists and labels rather than box fans and white noise. I don't know. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Honestly, like whale sounds, you know, you've had a good run. Um, but let's, uh, we love whale sounds. We love whale sounds. I don't want to pick on whale sounds. I should, <laughs> I should actually say there, there's lots of white noise and sleep aids and all of these other things that are legitimate. And it's funny because the patterns are clear in the data, right? You can tell when something is a sleep aid versus when something is being played nonstop, 24, seven, 31 second tracks, um, by a cohort of users that is, you know, small and very purposeful in what they listen to. Yeah. At the music tectonics pre-conference, Mark Mulligan from media research, uh, said, you know, everyone, every six to 12 months, everyone's up in arms that, you know, Spotify's getting delivered 60,000 tracks a, a day. No, wait, that's a hundred, wait, that's 120,000. He said, it's going to be a million very soon. Yeah. And, uh, it's interesting to think about like what percentage of those are such, mm, uh, lightly created tracks uh, that are, maybe aren't going to get a lot of listens, or maybe, I mean, that that sort of points to why there needs to be a technical or a technological solution for sort of at least just vetting like what's legit, le- what's legitimate out there. And then in a way you can't, it's hard, in some ways it's probably harder to, to, to uh, editorialize what is a legitimate track as genres become more diverse and, you know, ASMR tracks could be up there, podcasts, everyone's got a podcast, you know, there's so many different possibilities that could go through, you know, the, 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 the DSPs were thought of as retailers, but they are UGC in an, in another sense. It's it, we're really in this weird in between zone, and now musical creators are more UGC than studio production in some you know in some categories. So it, it does make a lot of sense to have some technical solution, but it's hard to vet on the front end. It's it's probably easier to vet the way you guys are in the sense of looking at weird streaming activity. I, I think that's exactly right. Um, the the democratization of access for creators that streaming has cre- you know, created for them provided them is one of the biggest positives and I think one of the most positive developments of the music industry over the last decade plus right the discovering you know sort of bedroom pop stars the Billie Eilishes and others of the world is awesome and I don't think as an industry we want to put gates up at the entrance out of fear. Um, because ultimately what will come as a consequence of that is a loss of some of the most creative, most talented people that we could be exposed to. And that would be a shame. So I agree. Technical barriers to entry to access are really challenging and also subjective. And I don't think, you know, one thing technology doesn't do well is um, adjudicate the subjective preferences of people. So our approach, which is to look at the data after consumption fast enough that obviously illegitimate activity won't flow through to a sales report, Um, is really the right way of looking at this. Because once you have even a couple of days, a day, a week worth of data on a particular user, a track, an artist, you can make a lot of highly, highly um, confident uh, predictions about the legitimacy of the consumption around that track or the behavior of that user. And so our view is that within a day, within a couple of days, we can start making high confidence determinations that will inform things for our clients, like should this be on an algorithmically distributed playlist or not? Should this be eligible for charting or not? Uh, and then by the time the month is done, with the highest possible confidence, we can say, exclude this from sales reports, it's fraud, keep this in, it's legit. And that I think is the best outcome, both for creators on the front end to make sure that they're not 
penalized for up, uploading something new that we've never heard before that's going to be great, um, but also protects the integrity of the industry on the back end before the money starts flowing through the pipes. Right. Yeah. Well, you've really hit upon a, um, a really kind of a win-win solution for the music industry. Win for you guys, but also for so many other players in the mix, maybe not the fraudsters. So Morgan, your co-founder and co-CEO, Andrew Beatty there at BeatDap, is going to be on a panel at Music Tectonics called The X Billion Dollar Problem, Emerging Solutions to the Music Industry's Streaming Fraud Conundrum. We've also just confirmed Michael Pelchinski, who was VP of Strategy at SoundCloud during the moment when they did all that interesting artist-centric uh, payout stuff. Our chief strategy officer at Rock, Paper, Scissors, Trista Year Jaeger, will be moderating the panel with you. We're finishing out that panel, but I'm curious from your perspective, what are you hoping to get out of the Music Tectonics Conference next week? I mean, first of all, um, I live in Toronto, so any excuse to come back to LA, <laughs> I will take. Uh, and Music Tectonics is one of the best ones. Um, you know, it, it, it's this, right? I, we, we're we have a message to share with the industry. We have a lot of folks that we would love to work with to be advocating for, you know, the solutions we're developing. Uh, you bring together as, you know, a stunning room of awesome people who are influential in the industry. And so the opportunity to be there, to talk to them, to hear what's concerning them, um, and hopefully do some business and also just build some advocates is, is a win-win for us. Um, and like I said, I wouldn't miss a reason to come to Santa Monica. Amazing. Great. Uh, Morgan Hayduke, co-CEO and co-founder of BDAP. Great having you on the podcast. What's the best way to find out more about BDAP and get in touch? Morgan at BDAP.com, or you can come in off our website, but feel free to drop me a line directly. Always happy to hear from folks who are listening to the pod and hope to chat again soon. Awesome. We'll see you on the beach. Thanks so much, Morgan. Thanks, Dimitri. That was a masterclass in streaming fraud, but I'm looking forward to learning even more when Morgan's co-founder, Andrew Beatty, joins the Music Tectonics panel next week called The Billion Dollar Problem, along with Boomi's Adam Rabinovitz, music tech strategist Mike Pelchinski, formerly with SoundCloud, and our own Tristra New Year Jaeger. Okay, time to switch gears. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, Tristra has a very, a very compelling conversation with the MLC's Serona Elton with an update on how the industry is leaning into the importance of getting rights data right and the role of transparency and getting royalties to the right people. We'll be right back. You can still get in on the conversations like these at the Music Tectonics Conference. We extended our regular price tickets until noon Pacific time on Friday, October 20th. Right now, tickets are still $350 for three days of mind-melding and mingling with music innovators. But after October 20th, you'd have to pay the walk-up rate, $450. So get over to musictectonics.com and grab your ticket. That's also where you can find out all the who, what, where for the conference, October 24th to 26th in Santa Monica, California. Don't miss out. Okay, we are back, and now Tristra has that interview with the MLC's brilliant head of educational partnerships, Serona Elton. I got unusually excited about data after listening to their conversation. Over to you, Tristra. I am talking right now with Serona Elton, who is head of educational partnerships at the MLC. Thank you so much, Serona, for making the time. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So you have a lot of expertise and a lot of 
aspects of the music business. But I really wanted to talk a little bit today about one area of your wide ranging expertise, which is data and how the role it plays in the music industry. So we're at a really interesting time when it comes to data. It feels like some things have gotten way better. Some things are remaining challenges or maybe have gotten even more challenging. What's your take on it? How would you sum up where we are right now? Oh, how how can I sum it up? Well, data is more important than ever before um, because, you know, the volume of transactions that we are dealing with really in society as a whole, but especially in the music industry, the volume of transactions has just exploded. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you just don't stand a chance of, of getting those things, those transactions, which in this context I'm talking about, royalty transactions, money flowing, uh, it doesn't flow correctly without the correct data. Mm-hmm. And so um, the role of data is more important than ever, both in terms of making sure that the right people get paid and making sure that people can discover and find what they're searching for. You know, we don't think of it, it as data when we go on to our favorite digital music service and and look for, you know, the latest track by our favorite artist. But as soon as you start typing in that name, you're actually you're actually using data <laughs> and that's mm-hmm. how you find them instead of you know flipping through bins of records at stores and so data is critical for discovery and data is critical to get people paid what has gotten better to your mind where what improvements have have we made like as an industry where is where has there been real progress when it comes to either generating better data handling it connecting all the loose threads what do you think Well, I think we have seen a couple of really important improvements. I think people's awareness of data and and what we mean by that, whether that's um, people working at music companies or whether it's creators themselves, songwriters, recording artists, I think there's way more data awareness than I've ever seen before in the industry. And, you know, I frequently come across people using terminology that really used to be only used by a small number of people that did nothing but data work. Now it's, you know, rolling off the tongue much more commonly from all kinds of different people involved in different sectors and at different stages in the process in the music business. So I think we really have um, an amazing explosion of awareness right now, um, which is amazing. And I think our data practices have improved a lot in terms of, um, changes in processes where uh, when you can't like get to the next step, you know, do not pass go Mm -hmm. unless you have provided certain critical information. We're starting to see that happen more and more throughout that process that goes from creation right through to distribution and then royalties flowing. We're seeing more checkpoints put in place where people must provide data in order to continue down the path. Um, and that leads to better data practices and capturing, right? It, it forces your hand. And so I'm seeing more of that than ever before as well. Um, I think where we've, I don't want to say we've gone backwards because I don't think we have. I think we've mm-hmm. made amazing progress moving forward, but we just have more data than ever before. The volumes mm-hmm. are tremendous. And so trying to keep up with, you know, the, the ongoing educational effort. I mean, probably in the time you and I are talking here, there'll be, you know, several more, probably tens, if not hundreds of people who will have just written their first song 
or made their first recording and now they need educating. So Mm -hmm. we're never done, right? You know, even if we all of a sudden waved a wand and educated everybody who's doing this already, tomorrow there'll be a whole bunch of new people that need that education. So, you know, I think keeping up with the volume of, of music being created and the volume of new creators coming into the marketplace um, continues to be challenging. And I think lastly, we've seen a lot of um, major moves in terms of data transparency. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that, you know, that that shows itself in, in a number of ways, whether that's organizations like the MLC <clears throat> making their database publicly available, whether it's uh, more digital music services carrying credits information and making that visible to um, users of the platform, right? Fans of the music. Um, we're seeing more data transparency than ever before as well, which is very encouraging. And a lot of that has benefited songwriters, one could argue, or the rights holders that are related to compositions. I mean, if I'm just thinking of, I mean, not to not to play favorites here, but Spotify's recent announcement of, I believe that songwriters could either promote themselves or there were special playlists around songwriters. Um, and I know Apple Music just added a bunch of new credits and credits in new places. So it's kind of interesting and exciting. It's like something that I know many people in the industry were asking for and and demanding for for years and it's cool to see it all come together it'll be interesting to see where it takes music fans absolutely i mean the kind of discovery that that sort of visibility enables is is mind-blowing you know you could be looking at the credits and say wow this person you know wrote or co-wrote this song let me see all the other songs you know let me listen to recordings of songs that this person's also written Mm -hmm. and you might discover some amazing new music you know you might say wow that drummer on this track is just fantastic what other tracks has this drummer, you know, performed drums on and then discover, you know, yet more music. So the discovery potential through the visibility of credits is is really just so exciting. And I feel like we're we're just at the early days of that. So we talked a bit about some of these, the technology that might enable that, like, for instance, having credits and being able to click click through and really find or tap through and find um, find your next favorite track based on, I don't know, the fact that Manu Kache played on it or something like that. Or <laughs> I was just yeah. thinking of my own example. Like, you know, a lot of people my age, and I'm dating myself, got really into um, jazz and certain international music thanks to Peter Gabriel. And the fact that you could kind of, you had to manually trace it, but you could find um, all, all the session musicians that he brought on that were just incredible performers from around the world. Um, and I think it'll just really, like these these innovations you've just been mentioning are going to really superpower that kind of um, discovery, especially in, in, you know, in younger music fans who are hungry for, for, for new things or for finding, uh, going down rabbit holes. Absolutely. You can just imagine the, the fun you can have. Um, and, and it's really important that, that fans of music really demand that we get there, you know, because mm-hmm. um, we're, we're, we're only in early days. Um, it's all technically possible. Um, it's all a question of capturing the data and having it be connected. And, and that will take an investment of time and energy and software um, and and for companies to spend that kind of money, put in that kind of investment to enable that, they need to know that the users of those platforms really want it. And so uh, so I encourage anybody who is passionate about that, you know, post about that, call out, you know, Spotify, Apple Music, whoever, and say, this is what we want. Make it happen. 
I love it. I I love the fans clamoring for more information about um, who in the world was played congas on that track. <laughs> so wonderful that that makes my heart go pitter pat. I love it. Um, okay, so behind every data point, there's a lot of technology, but there's also a whole group of humans, right? Every 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 data point is also a human uh, moment, and in some ways, some of our challenges in the music business remain deeply human problems, or I mean, or challenges issues, questions, how, you know, how are you seeing that evolve? Like you mentioned a lot more data awareness on the part of um, artists and rights holders and even, um, uh, you know, listeners who are starting to really explore based on the data they know is available. What human problems remain? Yeah. So whenever you um, look at, you know, how something happens, right, Mm -hmm. how, uh, how anything happens, there's generally three things to consider. There's people involved in taking action, there's processes, and there's systems, right? And so the people part of this um, comes down to, you know, who is the right person that actually knows the correct information? Mm-hmm. When do they know that? And how can they capture that information? And, and what's their incentive to do that, right? And so you can, you know, technology the data problems we're talking about in the music industry um, do not exist because we just don't have the technology, mm-hmm. you know? Um, I mean, I've, I've joked for a long time, you know, historically, if you wanted me to associate songs and sound recordings, you know, give me, give me an Excel file with two columns and unique identifiers for each and I'll put them in Excel, right? Uh-huh. It's yeah. not a technology problem. It's mm-hmm. a process and a people problem. And that has to do with, you know, what is an efficient way to capture that information from the right people at the right time? That's been, you know, something we haven't solved particularly well, but we're moving much closer to it. One of the things that excites me is uh, I'm seeing an evolution of of a, a number of tools that are designed to be used in the recording studio. There's a couple mm. of them out there and they're designed to make it very easy for all of those creators who are in that recording studio and collaborating, and, and let's be honest, so much music today is actually written by the writers during the recording process, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it does happen sometimes that people might get together and have a writing session and then go in the studio later to record it. But a lot of recording is happening while the writing is being done right there in the studio. Mm-hmm. And so the ability to make it super easy, super efficient, to capture in a system while everybody is right there in the studio, who is doing what, you know, who co-wrote this song, who was playing guitar um, is really amazing. Having that go from happening in, in, in the real world, in real life, right. IRL into a system and then have that data be transported from that studio to the music publisher, to the record label, to the distributor, and ultimately to the digital music service, and to all of the kinds of, you know, rights organizations that have to pay people, that Mm -hmm. is super exciting. Um, And and having that capturing of data integrated into the creative processes is where I think we're making, you know, major progress. Um, and, And the key there is that the people in those studio sessions need to realize how important it is and, you know, not leave that session until that information is captured, right? That's that's a key people change that can happen. I think 
staff, you know, staff members at record labels and music publishers are really well aware of the importance of data. And, mm-hmm. and you know, you can't really have a record company or a, a publisher today without a team of people dedicated just to setting up your, your data about your songs and about your recordings. Um, but even then, you know, um, there's always a battle. There has been, as long as I've been in the business, to get more funding for staff to mm-hmm. do more data management, right? So that's always a you know a, a, a battle to be raged inside of those companies, and and digital services need to you know are, are run by people. People make decisions, right? Um, decisions to add um, text, <clears throat> add credits to what you can see on a digital service. That's a decision made by somebody at a digital music service, and so we just have to reach the decision makers who get to decide what money is spent on mm-hmm. and, and influence them about how important it is. I want to switch gears just slightly, but this is still on the topic of humans attempting to wrangle data. And one thing I think is really exciting about what the MLC has done, and you mentioned transparency earlier, is to sort of create these tools, these portals where any rights holder or any songwriter or you know, independent publisher, anybody could go and look for works that had maybe not had fallen through the cracks, hadn't been fully claimed. Maybe the data wasn't correct. Maybe it was missing. Um, But I really love that we've reached this, we've sort of crossed a Rubicon of transparency, right? It feels like Mm -hmm. even 10 years ago, and you can speak to this better. You're, you're, you've forgotten more than I've known about this. I think, Um, you know, we're looking, looking back, everyone had their database and that was their thing. And it was siloed or proprietary or only available, you know, sort of in a commercial kind of setting. Whereas what, what y'all have done is bring so many things, um, you know, and make them accessible to people, just so they can look and and manage their own data in an environment that makes uh you know makes human sense right um instead of yeah. in some huge spreadsheet or some other format that's very difficult for most humans to read so um that's a really exciting decision that was made how are you seeing that decision playing out any any thoughts on that oh we're super excited about it and and i do feel by the way i should apologize for my scratchy voice today <laughs> Uh, like, <laughs> too, too many uh, events going on. Too much talking about the MLC events. It's hard. Um, it's hard to educate without talking. <laughs> no, it's very hard. It's my favorite topic. <laughs> um, no, we're super excited, and so you know, I, I will firstly give credit to the Music Modernization Act that change in the law that led to the MLC being created, because it mandated, rightly so, and, and songwriters and uh, fought hard for this. Um, it mandated that the MLC have a publicly available database of musical works ownership information. In other words, song ownership information. We're very proud to do that. Um, and, and that really, it, you know, we're not the first to ever have data available on our website. You know, ASCAP and mm-hmm. BMI and other PROs have done that as well. But I think where we've really been able to take it to the next level is that our entire database is available Mm -hmm. for um, people to take a data feed. Now that's not something that, you know, just your average person would want to (laughs) do. It's a big (laughs) database, but what that means is that other companies, you know, that have the technology capabilities could take a feed of the entire data set, right. And, and compare that to their own data, um, do different things with it, you know, create different businesses that might, provide value to, you know, everybody in the value chain. So that's exciting. Um, But what we're extra, extra proud of are the tools that we've built for our members to use. And Mm -hmm. one of the ones that you were just talking about 
had to do with um, making it visible to our members where we are still, like where we have royalties that we have not yet been able to pay out because mm -hmm. we have not been able to do something called matching. So matching is when we are able to match a sound recording to the, the underlying song or musical work that it was based on, right? That mm -hmm. connection, that link between the sound recording and that song, we call that matching. And when we have not been able to match, I mean, we have computers doing it, you know, uh, machine learning algorithms, uh, an army of human beings, but there's still some items that remain unmatched. And we are very excited to have launched this thing called our matching tool. And what it does, and we really describe it as sort of illuminating the black box of royalties, mm -hmm. <laughs> illuminating the black box, because any one of our members can go into this matching tool, search it to find sound recordings of their songs, and then recommend those matches to us. Right. And it doesn't matter how much or little money we're talking about. They could find something that literally had two streams. Right. And mm -hmm. has a fraction of a penny. But say, hey, MLC, please take the time. Match my sound. Match that sound recording to my musical work and pay me that money. It's my money. Um, and so having the ability for people to search this this data set of unmatched recording uses and, and even in most cases, they can click on a little play button and listen to that recording because sometimes, you know, you have a common song title. It's going to be difficult to confirm mm -hmm. if that's actually a recording of that song. But this tool even enables them to listen to it. So, um, you know, it, it takes everybody playing their part to get everybody paid. And, you know, we think this this tool, this matching tool, has so much value um, to the the people, especially self-administered songwriters who mm -hmm. are handling their own data. And, you know, it, it, again, it may not be a ginormous amount of streams. It may not be a ginormous amount of money, but it's their money. And this tool lets them take proactive action to make sure that they get paid. And it's cool that once they've claimed it and once the once the match has happened, it's there, right? And so future royalties exactly. will flow to them. So that's that's really super exciting. So exactly. I've got one one last question that I've been pondering. And you know, you, you have a, a double role, or maybe even more than a double role, but in addition to your work with the MLC, you're also a professor. And you're um, you know, this is such an interesting time for um for university education. There's a lot going on. And students are facing a lot of challenges, but there's a lot of really neat, cool developments and, and all sorts of interesting things happening. From your perspective, what does it look like right now? Uh, how, how, what is the next generation of music professionals interested in? What issues are you seeing coming up or what exciting opportunities? You know, what, what, what do you think about as a teacher when you go into the classroom and start working with these future music professionals? Yeah, it is a very exciting time. Uh, I think what we're seeing, certainly at the the school where I teach at the University of Miami, Frost mm -hmm. School of Music, and probably across all of our peer institutions, is that students realize that it's going to take more than simply knowing their craft and, and really being amazing at their craft. Yeah. They also need to understand how to get a career launched and, and how, to, how to have a successful career, right? I think the days when... 
you know, you might show up and just learn how to play, you know, your your harmonica. <laughs> I always use that <laughs> instrument because it doesn't offend anybody. Like if I pick an actual instrument, I wait. it seems like I'm picking on somebody. <laughs> the so, anti-harmonica you know, folks won't cancel you here. No, they won't cancel me because you pretty much can't major in harmonica really anyway. So, so or, you know, or triangle or kazoo or whatever, right? You pick your instrument. You can't just show up and learn how to be a virtuoso on that instrument and then mm. magically think a career is going to happen, right? Yeah. There's so much more that you need to know. And and so what you really see at, at music schools everywhere is a real acknowledgement of that. And you see courses in the curriculum that are focused on, you know, explaining the different parts of the, the music industry to the different students, depending mm-hmm. on which direction they're heading. I mean, it's one big music industry, but there are some nuances about the way things work. If Absolutely. you're trying to, you know, make a living as a classical musician or a popular music musician. Yeah, or composer. So, yeah, exactly. So so it will be, of course, specific to the particular discipline they're studying. But you see curriculum uh, having been adapted over, you know, the last probably 20 years to add in more courses that talk about career preparation, understanding the business aspects of your field and a lot more practicum type experiences, mm-hmm. a lot more hands-on, you know, internships or, you know, uh, residencies, doing things where you're learning by doing a lot less sort of sitting and listening to somebody talk at you and a lot more doing and getting that, you know, invaluable feedback. Um, And so I think, you know, that's, it's very exciting in higher ed right now when you look across and, and, you know, some schools are doing it better than others and and it, it does vary, but I think savvy students these days expect that. And when mm-hmm. they come in and they, they don't just, you know, say, wow, who's my teacher? They say, what does the curriculum look like? How are you going to be preparing me for my career? Um, and, and that's a perfect question to, to be asking. And I think schools have really stepped up to be able to answer that in a variety of ways. Yeah, I can I can say that I've witnessed something similar here at the Jacob School of Music at Indiana University. Mm-hmm. Um, even even folks who are deep in the classical tradition are really trying to think outside the box and understand how they could play more um, and, and, you know, have a more fulfilling or well-rounded career um, through what used to be more non-traditional interaction with the music industry. And it's really neat to see. Um, there's and so many interesting ideas and, I don't know, it's fun hanging around with young people. <laughs> it, <is. laughs> it inspires you and, and makes you, make, you know, involuntary optimism is the, is the mood that I use. <laughs> I like to, <laughs> is how I like to sum it up. So it's great. Um, well, thank, thank you so much, Serona, for making time and for sharing your amazing insights. See, I love how interesting Serona makes the importance of data for tracking songs and recordings. You can see why she's also a professor. Nice one, Tristra. Let's go to a quick update from Shaylee about the conference, and then this segment you have to check out where Daniel Roland of Lander tells Tristra what he found out when he tested all the AI generative music systems that have been rolling out recently. Be right back. Hey, Music Tectonics besties. Shaylee here with some exciting programming announcements as we get ready to be back on the beach in Santa Monica for the fifth annual Music Tectonics Conference. First, I'd like to highlight a new panel I've been working on called Transmedia Approaches to Music, the intersection of Hollywood, gaming, and music. The idea of this panel will be to dive into all the different opportunities for artists to monetize their music and build themselves as a brand across different medias. 
Sitting on this panel will be Brandon Bauman, Global Head of Original Content at Spotify, Brooke Raskoff, Global Music Marketing and Streaming Lead at Riot Games, and an investor to round out the perspective. Next, I'd like to spotlight Tatiana Sirisano's Fireside Chat, which will be rounding out the last day of the conference with high-level insights that wrap together all the themes of music tectonics and projections for the future of music and tech drawn from Media Research's Deep Data Insights. Another panel I'd like to highlight with some high-level industry leaders is the state of creativity in music and tech. With Matt Henninger of Moises, Danny DeChacho of Splice, Daniel Rowland of Lander, and this will be moderated by brilliant Danny Deal at BandLab. Now, before we get back to the episode, I wanted to be sure to let you know about this cool new opportunity that my team just launched. Taking place on the second day of Music Tectonics, we will have an AI innovation house with a chance for AI companies to get demo spots and branding at the conference. Music Tectonics is always keeping on the pulse of trending tech. If you want to be a sponsor of the AI Innovation House, feel free to reach out to me at shaley at rockpaperscissors.biz and we can schedule some time to chat. If you haven't secured your spot to the conference yet, go to musictectonics.com and buy your badge now. All right, back to the episode. Okay, if you come to Music Tectonics, you know Daniel Rowland at Lander. In fact, he's speaking about the state of music creativity next week with Matt Henninger of Moises AI. Danny DeChacho of Splice, and Danny Deal of BandLab. What a lineup. Back to Tristra for this segment on generative AI music tools that have come out recently and experiments with them by Lander's Daniel Rowland. Thank you so much, Daniel, for for volunteering to uh, join me. And uh, what I really would love to talk to you about today is some of the explorations you've been doing and sharing on um, everybody's favorite social media platform, LinkedIn, um, you kind of road tested a bunch of the larger models that are generating music. So from places like Meta and a couple like Google, a couple other um, big tech places. And I wanted, I was just curious how those experiments went. What were your impressions as someone who's worked with audio and, you know, been dealing with and loving music for a long time? Um, you know, what mo- or let's start, but let's actually, we should probably start out by letting folks know what are some of the bigger models that are out there that the public can play around with? Yeah. So the ones that are kind of readily accessible, a lot of people have probably heard, and you mentioned a few of them already, right? So the meta and Google offerings, um, music LM and music gen, um, are, are, are two, right. And music gen being part of meta's audio craft mm-hmm. offering, which is really, it's a couple of different things. Like there's uh, generative sound effects. So they have, you know, a model trained on sound effects libraries and also when, uh, trained on, on music. And so those are two that I, you know, I had done a fair bit of testing with. And since those were released, there's been other ones that have come out as well. And of course there's, there's, there's a number of them to varying degrees of, um, uh, of quality, uh, the most recent one is probably from Stability AI, mm-hmm. um, the Stable Diffusion, right? One of the image generators, and that's called Stable Audio. So that's kind of come out recently, kind of from there. They, they have a, a team internally, Harmony, that team, mm-hmm. um, that, uh, that that's a music division, right? So they've had an open source thing, and now they went out and, and got a data set from this company, Audio Sparks, which is a production music library, and they trained on 800,000 tracks of theirs, and they released an actual product that you can pay for called Stable Audio, which is a kind of a competitor to these 
other things we've been chatting about and Splash has one too. And there's a number of them. So I've kind of tested them and, you know, the result is similar amongst all of them um, with, with some subtleties. So when I first tested the Google and Meta options, Meta to me was superior, um, mm-hmm. not just in, in, you know, because of the output that I was getting, mm-hmm. but because of the input options with Meta and you, you, you know, we've kind of talked about this previously, instead of just having to type in what I want, which is a very awkward way for people to engage with music for a number of reasons I'm sure we'll talk about, you can actually provide an input file as an inspiration to kind of direct where it's going, which is a little something people, I think it's a little more digestible, feels a little bit more artistic to go about it that way. Whereas with Google and a number of the other options, it's up to you to kind of enunciate what you want to speak, what you want into existence. So that's why I really liked the, the meta one. The new, um, and not to be too long-winded, but the new uh, stable audio one from Stability is actually very good. I mean, the, the audio quality is superior to some of the other ones that are out there sonically, mm-hmm. um, but it's still a bit of a crapshoot on, on what you're going to get. And a lot of it, like ChatGPT and other things like MidJourney and, and Dolly, it's reliant upon your ability to say what you want. We're still, the music space, so that everybody knows, is kind of where the image generation space was three years ago, right? Where people oh, yeah. are saying it's not very good and it's never going to sound good or it's never going to look good. And we know that that's not the case, right? This tech improves. Look at the image generation space. So that's still a little bit different than the music space. But don't expect to get something that's just perfect track back because you're not going to get that. Um, but what you do get is some stuff that can be very inspiring, whether it's you're asking for a fully composed track to sample or you're asking for samples and loops back. You know, I want a jazz piano loop uh, in the style of, you know, Nina Simone or whatever, mm-hmm. and you're not going to get that back, but you're going to get something that could be could be useful if you have the abilities to take it to the next place, right, and use it in the context of something you're already creating. And that's kind of where we're at with the technology. So I would love to take a second here to unpack uh, a little bit what we talk about when we talk about quality with generative AI results. Yes. So are we talking about our, the, the sort of is it true to the prompt or intention of the prompter, which I guess is hard to judge. It's like, it sounds like something we need to bring in like a, a resident philosopher or something to get that in there. But um, yeah, exactly. Is it the, I mean, is it the, the audio quality itself? So how, you know, how well it sounds, the, the resolution, um, and maybe you can give some better terms to that. Um, and then there's a problem, and this is something I heard with some of the tracks you generated, which sounded kind of cool, but they were extremely incoherent if we think about music as a language, right? It's like, yes. as you said, it reminds me of like some of the GPT models, like two or three, you could get back some really weird ass prose that was that was quite inspiring. You're like, wow, this is really, really weird. I never would have put those concepts or words together. So I'm wondering if you could speak for a minute about the different parameters by which you think we should be potentially judging these models and their outputs. Well, I think you just, uh, you know, said it r- very well, which is <laughs> one of which is fidelity, right? So yeah. the actual audio quality of it, does it sound like a bad MP3? Does it sound like, a, you know, to, to give an analogy to kind of how we think about audio as engineers, is it is it a very lossy kind of compressed mm-hmm. sound, you know, data wise, or is it something that's very high fidelity? And right now, a lot of what you get back um, is has this this very lo-fi sort of aesthetic to it, right? Which can be a can be a vibe, right? You could say that that's useful for things. I mean, mm-hmm. as engineers Paper and producers, wave. a lot of times we, we go to great lengths <laughs> to make things yeah. sound kind of grungy, but it's kind of you don't really have a choice, right? Mm-hmm. It's going to kind of have that sort of a, a quality to it. Um, and then, of course, the other side is, is as you said, like is it accurate to what you were hoping to get? And 
quite often, I mean, it's going to be, it might have a component of what you are suggesting, right? Mm -hmm. Like you want a synth wave track that kind of sounds like a weekend that has, you know, drums similar to whatever. You're going to get something like that back. And as you continue to, to hit generate over and over again, you might get 10 things and three of those things might kind of be on point. That's kind of where we're at. So it's, it's the, you know, creatively, are you getting something back that fulfills what you wanted? And then sonically are you getting something back that suits the needs that you have. As an example, if I wanted to generate a track that I could take as it was and use in an advertisement, for example, ooh, not, <laughs> when we're talking about generative audio specifically, mm -hmm. not MIDI generation where you're then choosing samples mm -hmm. and making it sound lush, not so great for that at the moment. Um, and it's, it's similarly, are you getting back a track that sounds like it was composed by a human if that, you know, if that's the goal? Um, you know, it's, it's hit or miss, but you can get some good stuff. I mean, there's companies I have certainly, in my experience uh, and from the experience, experiments, excuse me, of other people, heard things that are like, okay, that's a track. Now, mm -hmm. it might be a 20-second clip or a 30-second clip maybe that, that works and then it falls apart, right? So you're still having to go in and curate and curate to get that. But that's the type of things. These are the type of limitations, just like we've seen in other areas, that will fall away in the coming years. And it's about... It's not just about the improvement of the models. It's about the access of, to, of the companies building these models to the correct data sets to train these engines. It's one reason, and I could be totally off base about this, but when you try to generate loops, individual instruments, so I don't want a full production. I want a piano loop, a drum loop, a you know, vocal loop or whatever. Very rarely do you get back something that's, that's worth a crap because I'm wow. not so sure that the data sets that have been used to train these engines were loops and samples. I think they were probably full tracks, right? It's that's, you know, mm -hmm. like take the, the stability AI example, they trained on a production music library of completely finished, you know, compositions. And it's better at hitting that target to me than it is creating loops. So again, we're starting to see deals come in place where companies, you know, that, that are the content owners are starting to make deals with the companies that are the creators of this technology because, you know, they, they, the content owners want to monetize what they have in various ways. They see the threat of generative AI and they know they need to kind of get involved with it or, or be opposed to it. And it's the tech side of things. They need that data to improve these engines. So it's fascinating to see kind of the back and forth and the deals are being done behind the scenes right now. I mean, I could almost imagine interlocking layers of AI. So you'd have the generative layer that had been trained really well on a bunch of stems and, and individual instruments or vocal lines. And then you'd have another AI model, which would assemble the tracks in ways that were most likely to form a coherent, you know, composition or song or soundscape. I mean, it could be really interesting as, uh, I mean, and maybe that's exactly what's going to happen. I think that has something similar happened with images. Um, yeah, it's a it, that's a really really interesting way to to think about how we could build better AI. Well, what you just said it was described as the holy grail of all of this, right? Because ultimately, what do I really want to get back, right? Do I want to get back a stereo mix that the AI has come up with, or do I want the AI to generate the vocal and the bass and the drums and all of these things intelligently relative to one another into a fully arranged composition and provide me not just the mix but those stems back that I can then iterate upon and repurpose and what have you, like that is what ultimately where all this is going and, and what will be, uh, you know, yeah, kind of the ultimate version of this, at least in the foreseeable future. Yeah. So it's, it's really interesting to think too about craftspeople such as yourself or artists such as yourself who can take 
who can make more of these little bits and pieces that could potentially be generated with AI. So w- one of the more interesting directions I've seen with some generated um, generative AI startups has been startups that really specialize in one or two types of sounds. So like drum hits or um, really specific kinds of um, synth patch generations. Like what, 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 you know, people used to uh, pay, uh, you know, folks for back in like the nineties, right. When you'd like right away to get like a patch from some custom patch designer um, to put in your, in your synthesizer. Well, I think that, that there's some role for some AI startups in that realm. And I'm just wondering what you're seeing about some of these bits and pieces and other ways besides just creating a full blown track that you're seeing generative AI poke its head up here and there. Well, yeah, let's just kind of pull on the thread of what you what you just said, which, again, is pretty accurate. This is why Trist is awesome. Oh, okay. space, <laughs> it's all it. by accident. It's it's a pro- my- I'm a probability machine, <laughs> just like AI. Right, so it makes my job easy. I'll just follow your lead here. Um, so if, if we're trying to look at where AI is hitting the target the closest, right, you kind of want to look at the most simplistic use of it. And this is what you just said a minute ago, which is it's, it's okay. So it's, it's obviously fairly difficult for AI to compose a three-minute song with a clear beginning middle and ending. Okay. It's okay. AI is not really great right now at generating consistently, by the way, when I, when I say it's not great, I don't mean that it can't do it. I mean, it can, it can repeatedly consistently hit the target without you having to iterate through a million different things. Right. And that's where we're at. It can't do that really. So with samples and loops, uh, well, loops specifically, it's not there, but where people are actually doing quite well is with the generation of individual samples or what we would call one shots. Right. Mm-hmm. And specifically for uh, non-pitched instruments like drums, right? So if you look at some of the stuff out there that's been productized uh, in, in, in plugins, right? So things that we would use inside of a DAW to create music with, there's some quite good stuff that's it's advanced in the, just in the past six months to a year pretty far. Companies like um, Audio Lab, who make this thing called Merge It Drums, right? Yeah. Which generates effectively a drum kit for you. And you can choose to lock certain pieces of the kit. Maybe you like the kick drum, but you don't like the snare drum. And then you can tell the plugin, tell the model, do I, do I want to have a completely different snare drum? How much variance do I want from that existing drum to the next versions? And it will continue to iterate, iterate, iterate until, until you like it. I mean, Sony Computer Science Labs has a product called DrumNet that does that as well. There's, there's a few of those floating around, and I've found that those have become quite good, right? They're actually getting to the point where they are usable in these kind of bite-sized uh, generative AI use cases. So I, I think we're, we're going to start to see that. Um, and that's been, again, there's a, a number of products there I didn't even mention, but they're all effectively doing the same thing. And, you know, you combine that with generative MIDI sequences, which we can do fairly well, right? Because that's mm-hmm. just about the positioning of notes. It's kind of the, you know, the sheet music that you use to play the sounds that actually works fairly well. Now, can we then evolve that to loops and samples and then to the fully full tracks and have it be a consistently um, artistically fulfilling output? Uh, yes, but that's, that's kind of where things are headed. Interesting. So one thing that we were talking about before we hit record here was if you think in music, if you're an audio thinker, it can be difficult to figure out how to translate all of those thoughts and feelings into text prompts. Um, yes. In some ways, I think our brains are, well, they're, they're not wired, but our brains are more inclined to, to attach words to visual uh, elements, right? I, either either we have more practice telling each other about visual stuff rather than audio stuff, or um, I don't know, maybe there's something inherent in the way our brains are architected. But though, I was just curious if you've talked to other producers or other people experimenting with gender, generative AI in music, it, you know, how 
How does it feel to try to translate the world you hear in your head into a few text prompts that you're hoping the machine will read properly? Yeah, it's not exactly the most intuitive workflow for people who are, A, for people who are used to composing and writing in their own music, and B, I think for people who aren't, right? I don't think mm. it really works for, for, for anyone is the best way, uh, the best interface for, for this sort of thing. Because if you think about it, the realm of really clearly being able to enunciate what you want from music is is the realm of a, a pretty highly skilled producer, right? Somebody who oh, yeah. can pick the pieces they want and reference the things that they want and, and, and really speak that into existence. That's not something the everyday person is walking around. I mean, the way that most people relate to music, it's either you know, okay, maybe you, you can't play an instrument, but you can, you can hum and go, do, 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 do. I want something like that. Or you Mm -hmm. reference an existing artist or an existing song or something with, you know, some content you've engaged with before. Those are, you know, even, even for songwriters or people sitting around jamming, right? That's, Hey, give me a beat like a James Brown or give me a, you know, a baseline like so-and-so. That's how we typically speak about this type of stuff. If we're speaking at all about it, and all oftentimes people are just creating because they're physically engaged with an instrument. So it's a completely different way of going about creation that text prompts doesn't really address. So, and I don't think it ever really will. And the problem of course is with the legalities understandably involved in this, you can't just really say, I want it to sound like Prince, right? Or something like that, because the data set likely, hopefully was not trained on Prince because Prince has not authorized his catalog because the state hasn't to be trained. And those are the type of things that some of, for this to really gain scale, some of those barriers will have to come down. And there's, of course, labels interested in this. And we see, you know, movement in that direction. But yeah, so I don't have a solution. And a lot, I've, I've heard a lot of other people talk about this, too, that don't really have a solution about where this is going to go and what the interface is going to look like. But um, we have to bring it closer to how people are used to engaging with and speaking about music for it to really, you know, become this ubiquitous technology that, that is integrated in all the products that we currently use and ones that, you know, we can't even perceive. Yeah, there's something to be said for looking at how humanity has reacted to audio or music for a long time, right? Like movement, dance, gesture, and all of those kinds of controls and interfaces are still very much bleeding edge, right? And it's fun to think of the day where you could like dance your song into being. I know it sounds very that woo. Means- I know I'm going to get my patchouli out here and um, like, you know, I'm... <laughs> Cue Rhiannon. Tap on my tap on my chest. <laughs> That's right. And have that become a drum loop instantaneously. I mean, yeah, we, we, yeah, we yeah. see this, right? Like, I mean, even the new this technology has been around for a while. But if you look at the new TikTok Ripple thing, right, mm-hmm. which is where I can, you know, I, well, like I did earlier, I can hum something, and the AI, AI will analyze that and attempt to build an arrangement based upon the, that input, right? So it's not about me having to describe something. I can just, you know. I can enunciate it or I can tap it on a table or I can, you know, maybe play it on an instrument and I'll get, be able to iterate through and then type in, oh, I like what you did, but I wish this was more classical or it sounded more like Drake or that. Then you can start to iterate upon these kind of more musical inputs. I think that that's kind of a hybrid approach that that we'll start to see make its way into more professional tools. But right now it's not, it's in a very much kind of social media. Yeah. I love that. I would love, I, I love the, the, the way, you're talking about, again, these different layers that a, an AI could be baked into a bunch of them in different ways, but they would all sort of contribute to a very, very different experience of creating music, right? That would sort of take take us away from the, you know, what the console that's been translated into a flat screen and suddenly, you know, a lot of more people can 
find a way to interact with this technology that couldn't do it before. Are there, this has like been so fascinating. I love how you're talking about how this is getting incorporated into more professional products um, from social media. That's like so interesting, right? Because a lot of what we've seen just with digital music and that you know recently has been translating like the the fancy studio console into you know something like a very sophisticated DAW and then sort of simplifying that so people can use it and manipulate it who may not be experts i'm wondering if you're seeing anything else out there or or like just the the first inklings of the way ai might help more people make music who may never have thought of playing around with audio before. Yeah, sure. And I mean, similar to what we've spoken about before, you kind of have to meet people where they are, right? So mm-hmm. yes, I personally, as a professional, love using a DAW and there's even, you know, GarageBand and these other things that are still basically professional level tools, but mm-hmm. the, you have to seek those things out, right? You have to say, I want to make music. I want to download the software. I want to interface with it. And there's, you know, some AI involved in there to kind of help me along my way and shepherd me to getting something that makes me inspired. That makes me want to come back and do that process all over again. But that is niche relative to to having tools like the TikTok tool I just mentioned that meets people who aren't even thinking maybe about making music, mm-hmm. but it kind of either prompted to or they see other people doing it and they can immediately engage with that. And that's why you know the social media component of, of music production and music making and collaboration, uh, especially collaboration, I think is, is super key. And we've seen that over the years with singing, right? Where, you know, we want to do duets on Insta or TikTok, whatever, right? Snap, you see all that kind of stuff. But now having actual music production be involved in that is important. And there's been attempts at this over the years that haven't really caught on. So I think, but 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 they've always been ones that where AI wasn't really involved, right? So, okay, we give somebody a sequencer inside of their social media platform, but you still have to understand what how that works, right? Mm-hmm. How to sequence a drum beat. How to, so just providing existing tools to a new market, I don't think works. I think you have to, the intelligence factor there is super important. So, um, yeah, I mean, that's, social media is where we're going to see a lot of this. And also to some degree in in the gaming community, I think there's some really interesting things being done um, whether it's in VR or, you know, things that are being released uh, via, via the, you know, a gamified music experiences that kind of like, you know, rhythm games, of course, have been popular for a while, whether you look at Beat Saber or any of the other million of them that are out there at this point on mobile uh, desktop console and VR, like having those become places where you're not just listening to a track that you, you know, or maybe when you don't know and, and hitting, you know, tr- triggers at various points, but you're actually creating as part of that mm-hmm. um, with other people, super fascinating. And, and where a lot of this is heading, where we're really trying to like, you know, allow people not just to participate, but have this kind of bi-directional conversation where they're part of the creative process in environments that they're already used to. And that is that kind of malleable content is where a lot of, I think things are heading across, you know, film, you know, music, et cetera. Yeah, it's going to be very interesting to tell my grandchildren about, you know, back in my day, <laughs> a song was, was a always thing. the same. And you watched it and it was done. Well, I love it, you though, because like, they will never have to suffer from their from their favorite song getting so ingrained in their brain that they can't hear it anymore, which is always a tragic thing for me because you know you know when you play a song like so many times in a row because you love it and you want that same hit and that same high and then like the 10th time you're like it's just not the same (laughs) anyway (laughs) here's to here's here's to here's to um to uh never having to lose that earworm feeling um for our future generations 
Well, thank you so much, Daniel. This has been a really fun um, whirlwind tour of um, your AI experiments and AI in general and how it's affecting music creation. And I can't wait to talk to you more at the Music Tectonics Conference. Before you go, I would love to hear what you're looking forward to in the next coming weeks when we all meet up in Santa Monica. What are you most excited about? I mean, first and foremost, just getting to see everybody and hang out and, and learn, right? I mean, the <laughs> tectonics for me is like, I, I feel like I'm I'm pretty or very well connected with kind of the, the future of the industry. But every time I go, I learn about multiple things that I had no idea about. And I hear, you know, meet people that, you know, I end up having relationships that take me in, in multiple directions, including on some of the stuff that I'm working on right now that I wouldn't have had had I not attended that. I don't want to be a pitch person for tectonics, but it's You can be a pitch person a for tectonics here. <laughs> Come on. It, yeah, this it's is such a, a safe space. It's, it's, it's ridiculous. It's in Santa Monica. What else could you want? Um, so, no, I'm, I'm super excited. And I get to hang with you. Come on. Yay. It's going to be fun. <laughs> I can't wait. Well, thanks so much, Daniel, for your time and your amazing thoughts. And I'll see you soon in Santa Monica. Most definitely. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Music Tectonics. If you like what you hear, please subscribe on your favorite podcast app. We have new episodes for you every week. Did you know we do free monthly online events that you, our lovely podcast listeners, can join? Find out more at musictectonics.com. And while you're there, look for the latest about our annual conference and sign up for our newsletter to get updates. Everything we do explores the seismic shifts that shake up music and technology, the way the Earth's tectonic plates cause quakes and make mountains. Connect with Music Tectonics on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. That's my favorite platform. Connect with me, Dimitri Vitsa, if you can spell it. We'll be back again next week, if not sooner. You're listening to Music Tectonics.